1: Hello, hello, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv, she who is very deeply relieved to be finished with the Orphic tradition, at least for the time being. That shit is messy. I just I mi- cannot deal with it. Which is why I wanted to bring you some good old basic mythology this week. A little palate cleanser, a story I've been putting off for quite a while, but that really, really should be told the time two giant twin sons of Poseidon attempted an assault on Mount Olympus. Today's episode, along with next week's, came out of a recent Patreon bonus episode that I did, so I thought I'd also take this opportunity to remind you all that I do have a Patreon, where I do bonus episodes once a month, entirely for patrons, and entirely based on what the patrons want to hear. I'll be honest up front, though, sometimes I am very late in getting those episodes done, and every once in a while... I do miss them completely, though I always try to provide something in exchange, something else bonus. Frankly, they're the worst for my ADHD because there are no real deadlines, just self-imposed deadlines, which means my brain decides I don't need to do anything or I will forget that it exists at all. My brain can be mean sometimes, but most of the time I do these bonus episodes where I ask my patrons which character or concepts they want to hear about, and then patrons get to ask any and all questions that they have about those topics. It's honestly just supremely fun. People ask amazing questions that result in my really having to think hard about certain myths and concepts, learning more than I would have otherwise, because sometimes you need prompts in order for your brain to really get to the good stuff. It's awesome. And last month in August, we covered Aries. Patrons asked so many incredible questions that suddenly I'd been rambling answers about Aries for 45 minutes, and that's when I realized I have not covered Aries nearly enough. And thus, here we are with Twin Sons of Poseidon. But I promise Aries will feature in a brilliant way, and next week, it's all Aries. If you're interested in listening to all these bonus episodes on my Patreon and asking questions in upcoming episodes, consider becoming a patron. The base level is just $5 a month and you get access to lots and lots of past episodes on so many different topics, including the Drunk Myth series that I sometimes do with Ancient History Fangirl and the crossover series that I do with the Partial Historians examining Greek versus Roman mythology. There's lots. You'll love it. There's a link in this episode's description. So with that periodic Patreon plug out of the way, let's talk about these troubling twins, shall we? This is episode 181, An Assault on Olympus, the giant twin troublemakers Otis and Ephialtes. Our story begins with a mortal couple, Elias and Iphamidiah. Where this couple lives and who they are is mostly unknown. Their role is minor. At least, Elias' role is minor. Iphimedia has some skin in the game. You see, Iphimedia was married to Elias, but as is the case with so many mortal women living in the world of Greek myth, let alone living by the sea, she was spotted by that god, Poseidon. In most of the surviving sources, we know only that Poseidon and Iphimedia had children together. We're not told details of their relationship. When it comes to Poseidon, it's a rarely good experience for the woman, if they can ever be termed good. But as I've told you many times, where Zeus is the type of predator who thinks he has real affection for the women he assaults, uh, Poseidon assaults a bit more for the fun of it, for the thrill. In this case, though, The most detail we have comes from the late and brief Pseudo-Apollodorus. It's rare that Pseudo-Apollodorus is our most detailed version of anything, but I'm pretty psyched to have this one. You see, here we have the refreshing notions that Iphimedia might have actually cared for Poseidon quite explicitly, and because of this, she wanted to have his child. How did she go about this, you might ask? Or you probably didn't, because it tends to be pretty straightforward. You know, intercourse and all. Not here, though. Iphamidiah used to go down to the beach to get Poseidon's attention. When she was at the beach, she would sit down at the edge of the sea, and she would gather the water in her arms, pouring it on her vagina. Yeah, that's how one gets the attention of a sea god. (laughs) Just splash a bit of water on your vag. But watch out. You never know how it's going to go with Poseidon. In this case, the pair either did have sex or this pouring of the water alone was enough. (laughs) But however the physical act went down, Iphimedia became pregnant with twins. Twins that are given the names Otis and Ephialtes, and who, very early in their young lives, are determined to be not quite human. In fact, they're enormous. From the moment they are born, the twins, Otis, and Ephialtes, grow like weeds. Together, the pair are called the Alloidae, the sons of Elias. Though, in this case, they're really the stepchildren of Elias, and everyone seems to know it. Even before the children begin to grow at the rate of, well, gods. Their names are not quite random, either. Their parents were really asking for trouble. Otis, you see, likely comes from either the ancient Greek word for horned owl, literally otos, or even better, the word for doom, oitos. And Ephialtes? Well, that one's more direct. Ephialtes means nightmare. So, you know, things are going to go well and these twins are going to prove themselves to be kind, gentle young men, only concerned with the lives of others who don't cause any trouble at all. time these twins are nine years old, they are absolutely enormous and very, very good looking. That's a fact that's found in the mythology, by the way. They are very specifically handsome as fuck. So we must ignore their age because while it's explicit that they're only nine, it's also explicit that they behave like adults. Maybe it comes along with growing like gods. I cannot explain it. Homer describes them in the Odyssey as the tallest and the handsomest men ever to grow up on Earth. Except maybe for Orion, another famously handsome giant. But other than Orion, whew, these twins are it. Which, frankly, probably contributes to the attitude that they're fostering at this point in their lives. They're these two young kids, let's call them men for the sake of grossness, they're these two young men who are the tallest, handsomest around, and they're being told this on a regular basis. They also, I think we're to believe, know that their father is Poseidon. So they're young and tall and hot and their dad is a god and Poseidon, no less. What do you think that's going to add up to in terms of a personality? If you're thinking it's not going to be good, you are very, very right. These two twins down on Earth look around and think, you know, they really could do better than this boring life. Their egos have grown along with their bodies, and they are ready for something better. Hyping each other up, building this need for a more impressive lifestyle. And finally, they come up with an idea. A way to make their lives as exciting as they feel they deserve to be. They start dreaming of getting up to Mount Olympus, to the realm of the gods, and taking it as their own. The more Otis and Ephialtes dream of getting up to the realm of the gods and fucking shit up, the more brazen they become. This is where I think the twin thing really comes in, too. They both have these bad ideas, but they hype each other up so much that the ideas seem better and better, and suddenly they're planning on assault on Olympus, and one of them is deciding he's in love with Hera, the queen of the gods, and wife of Zeus, of all people, and the other is deciding he's in love with Artemis, a goddess who very explicitly is not interested in men and has killed them for less. Bad ideas all around, but no one is there to tell them. So the bad ideas only continue to grow and spiral. At this point, they're straight up scheming. Ephialtes has decided that, yep, he wants Hera and Otis wants Artemis and both want to attack the realm of the gods. They don't want to be stupid about it. They think they're thinking it through. So who's the god most likely to defeat them if and when they manage to get to that realm of the gods and attack the immortal deities? Well, isn't it obvious? Only Ares, the god of war and battle lust, would be able to stop these two handsome giants. At least, that's how they see it. So what's the solution? Well, deal with Ares, obviously. I wish I could tell you that I have lots of incredible details about what is about to go down between these two twin giants, Otis and Ephialtes, and Ares, the god of war and bloodshed and all the nastiest bits of humanity. But well, there are no details. But watch as I try to turn what little we have into an exciting and coherent story all the same. Doom and Nightmare, better known as Otis and Ephialtes, get to planning. More plotting. But this time, they're plotting how they can keep Ares from preventing their assault on Olympus. How can they keep him out of their hair? Keep him distracted while they storm the realm of the gods? Or even better, how can they do away with him altogether? Finally, they come up with an idea and they are ready to put it into action. So, they get their hands on the god of war. Somehow though the means are not clear as much as I wish they were, and you know I don't make up things in the mythology. Regardless, they get a hold of Ares, and together, these twin giants are able to completely subdue the god of bloodshed, battle-lust, gore, and they... Well, they trap him inside of a bronze urn. Yeah. They just, I don't know, they figure out how to get a god into a bronze urn and then they seal him in and that's just kind of it. For a while, too. He is trapped inside of this bronze, like, pot, jug, for 13 months. Just over a year. In a pot. Ares. Phew. Phew. And the twins, Otis and Ephialtes, use this time to continue on with their plan, not only to storm Mount Olympus and wage a war against the gods themselves, but also now to take Hera and Artemis as their wives. Truly a perfect plan, I don't see what could possibly go wrong. With Ares out of the way, they feel that now is as good a time as any. So, Otis and Ephialtes get to sorting out how exactly they will physically reach this realm of the gods. Now, for all we say the gods lived on Mount Olympus, the mythology itself did understand that gods did not live atop that real mountain. While it was probably often in the clouds, they could also see the top and think, hey, there's no palace of gods up there. So it seems in order to reach the actual realm of the gods, presumably above Mount Olympus, Otis and Aphialtis know that they have to get into the clouds themselves. I'd say the heavens because it makes the point clearer, but frankly, I am trying to avoid ever using Christianized terms like that. So how does one get into the clouds, into the realm of the divine? If you're twin giants, you simply stack mountains on top of one another. Isn't it obvious? Otis and Ephialtes tear two mountains out of the earth, Mount Osa and Mount Pelion, and they piled each one on top of the highest mountain in Greece, the oh-so-famous Mount Olympus. We're talking three mountains, one on top of the other. The gods noticed this immediately, and they recognized that these twins are a far bigger threat than they'd realized. No one else had ever had that kind of idea to reach the gods, let alone was capable of carrying it out. Suddenly, the gods are paying attention. And this piling of mountains wasn't the only threat the twins made against the Olympians. They also said that they would use mountains to dam up the sea and to dry out the whole of the Mediterranean. This was getting serious, the Olympians realized quickly. But, fortunately, they are still the Olympian gods, and even twins who have a real skill with stacking mountains aren't actually a match for the gods.
0: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured.
1: They said, my head should be cut off.
0: The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: A new season of Bridgerton is here.
1: Otis and Ephialtes are threatening the Olympian gods with mountains piled one on top of another, with drying up the entire sea. And so, those divine gods are on high alert, ready to take on those twin giants. They prepare their own counterattack against the handsome and tall twins, Hermes sneaks in to where Otis and Ephialtes were keeping the bronze urn that held Ares inside, and Artemis distracted the twins down on Earth. Hermes had learned of where the twins were keeping Ares from their stepmother, a woman named Arabia, who was given the credit for Ares' savior. Hermes is able to free the god of war based on this information, and meanwhile, Artemis is distracting Otis and Ephialtes. She lured them to the island of Naxos, where she transformed herself into a deer. They were hunters at heart, and so as soon as she had transformed, whether they knew it was her or not, they had every intention of hunting that deer. These guys might be some of the perfect personifications of toxic masculinity. Just because you're tall and hot and everyone's been telling you how special you are for your entire lives doesn't mean you get to just do whatever you want, whenever you want, and it certainly doesn't mean you get to wage a war on the literal gods or hunt the goddess of the hunt. Nope, that's not how life works, dudes. But they don't know this yet. (laughs) They are too caught up in their own egos and ready and eager to hunt this nice-looking deer that they found on the island of Naxos in the middle of the Aegean. This deer, though, is Artemis, and she is not called the goddess of the hunt for no reason. While the two brothers each held their spears, poised to throw the weapons at this deer, she wove between the two, running back and forth in front, behind them. This only served to make them frustrated, their privilege being checked by a deer. (laughs) And they became even more eager to just finally throw those fucking spears and hit the deer and be done with it prove themselves to be the talented and beautiful young men that they've been told that they are. So, while this deer wove in and out, around and behind the two brothers, they both threw their spears in the direction of the deer. But she was too quick for them, too cunning, and Artemis had planned it perfectly. The brothers each threw their spears, intending to each hit the deer, but instead they hit each other. And in the very same moment, these twins, who had spent their entire lives together, plotting the downfall of gods and the stealing of women against their will, in the same moment, they each hit the other one with a spear. And so, together, they died. Though Otis and Ephialtes never actually made it up to the realm of the gods, never made it to actually warring with the divinities above, Their story would live on throughout the surviving Greek literature. They're mentioned by all the famous poets, Homer and Hesiod and Pindar, remembered forever for their attempt, and, well, for their size and handsomeness as well, like I said. They could probably be a little bit more remembered as the two mortals who planned and plotted to abduct and assault two Olympian goddesses, (laughs) but you just know that only appears in a couple of the sources. It's much bigger news that they were tall enough to stack mountains. Their fate after death is recounted in just a couple of late sources. One is pseudo Hyginus, a Roman writing in the 2nd century CE. He says that for their attempted crimes against the gods, they're punished in the afterlife, quote, bound by serpents to a column back to back. Between them is a screech owl sitting on the column to which they are bound. This story of the Elodi Otis, and Ephialtes is particularly interesting to me because of how it appears in the ancient sources. Or rather, its lack of appearance, really? But also not. There is no full-length story of these brothers in the ancient Greek sources, or rather nothing until Pseudo-Apollodorus, who's writing very late in the period. But he is also often writing about lost sources, which is why he's often the only source we have, which is particularly frustrating because he's truly the TLDR of Greek myth. (laughs) It's always so brief and lacking in any kind of narrative details. And that's the case for this too, except where it does appear in much more ancient sources, these brief mentions are all in very famous places. It's often referred to as a story of the time that Ares faced some hardship, but it's always in direct reference to these two brothers. In the Iliad, for instance, we get confirmation of how Ares' punishment went down, even as far back as Homer. Quote, Many of us who have our homes on Olympus endure things from men, when ourselves we inflict hard pain on each other. Ares had to endure it when strong Ephialtes and Otis, sons of Oleus, chained him in bonds that were too strong for him, and three months and ten he lay chained in the brazen cauldron. And then in the Odyssey, we get even more details, but still nothing resembling a full story. This takes place when Odysseus is in the underworld and speaking with, or often just witnessing, the dead around him. Quote, I saw Aelius' wife. She was Iphimedia, whose boast it was to have lain beside Poseidon. She bore him two sons, though their life was short. Otis, the peer of the gods and far-famed Ephialtes, These were the tallest men and the handsomest that ever the fertile earth has fostered, save only incomparable Orion. At nine years of age, their breadth was nine cubits, their height nine fathoms. They threatened the deathless ones themselves to embroil Olympus in all the fury and din of war. And so indeed they might have done had they reached the full measure of their years. But the god that Zeus begot and lovely-haired Leto bore Apollo destroyed them both before the first down could show underneath their brows and overspread and adorn their cheeks. Of course, as you heard in that version, Apollo is the one that causes their death, but still, we get this very ancient version of this story. And then they're mentioned in Hesiod's Catalogue of Women, another fragmentary work from the Archaic period, and in the Pythian Odes of Pindar, just a quick reference to Iphimedia's sons and their death on Naxos. Then, much later, we get Apollodorus' version, which I won't quote because it's essentially the story I just told you now, but further down the line, we get to references by Pausanias that I really want to share. So, as I'll mention again next week, I realize, because I recorded that first, Pausanias is a travel writer. He was a Greek, but he was writing in the Roman period, the 2nd century CE. Because of this, he was living in a very different Greece, but he did, fortunately, give us a really wild amount of information about the Greek world broadly. I haven't thought much about Pausanias before this, but I've been recently recording episodes for my upcoming series, Breaking Down the History and Mythology and So Much More of Sparta, and one of my guests specializes in Pausanias, and now I'm obsessed with him. What he did was travel the Greek world and speak with locals, asking for their stories, their myths, like their personal, passed-down stories. What this means is that he spoke with real, everyday people across the Greek world, and through them, we have stories that would not otherwise get written down, and often stories that have been passed down by generations, and even better, maybe even generations of women or enslaved people. It's a whole other mindset that doesn't really exist elsewhere in the sources. That's all to say, it's Pausanias that we get some local ideas about those twins, Otis and Ephialtes, who tried to attack Mount Olympus. When writing about a place in Boeotia, Pausanias explains that he's been shown the graves of these twins, quote, who died at the hands of Apollo. Homer and Pindar have written the same about them, that they met their destiny in Naxos, which lies beyond Paros. They have monuments in Anthodon. What this means, too, is that it's through Pausanias that we often know whether or not certain sites existed, even what things could have looked like, like many temples and shrines we know of because Pausanias visited them and he wrote about them. So nothing exists of them today, but we get this confirmation that it did back then. It's fucking beautiful. Sorry, I love Pausanias now. Alternatively, we have other sources who are said to have been writing history, and they have entirely different takes on who those twin sons were. So Diodorus Siculus, another fairly late writer, though not as late as Pausanias, wrote of seemingly historical brothers. In his reasoning, Iphimedia and her daughter were devotees of Dionysus who were captured by Thracians on Naxos. So, quote, Elias dispatched his sons, Otis and Ephialtes, in search of his wife, Iphimedia, and daughter, Pancratus. And they, sailing to the island of Naxos, defeated the Thracians in battle and reduced the city. Some time afterwards, Pancratus died, and Otis and Ephialtes essayed to take the island for their dwelling and to rule over the Thracians, and they changed the name of the island to Dia. But at a later time, they quarreled among themselves, and joining battle, they slew many of the other combatants and then destroyed one another, and from that time on these two men have received at the hands of the natives the honors accorded to heroes." That's a very lengthy history from Diodorus Siculus, uh, but it's totally alternative, but still using these same ideas. So here we have these no- this notion that they were real men who did something real, rather than mythological giants who stormed Olympus. I share all of this because sometimes the historical context is the most interesting part of these stories. And in this case, the surviving details just don't even remotely warrant an entire episode, so why not add in all of this background information? This is a story that is as old as the Iliad and the Odyssey, as old as Hesiod, meaning it's as old as the oldest mythology that we have recorded. It's mentioned everywhere, in the typical mythological sources, or the historical ones, but we it isn't ever fleshed out with details. Now, does that mean that there was a fully fleshed out epic version that's just been lost? I mean, it's not impossible, but no, probably not. Usually we would have found some kind of record or mention of it having existed. Probably what it is is a story that functions specifically, as I've shown you in all of these sources. It's a story to be mentioned in passing when you're referring to something else, to emphasize the vulnerability of the gods and their power at the same time. Sure, they've been attacked before, but no one's ever succeeded. Or, to reference the time the god of war and violence was trapped in a pot... That says a lot about Ares and his own specific vulnerabilities. It's a story to emphasize the power of children of gods and the way the gods will just put their noses in any old marriage and then toss in a divine child or two to mix things up. And very specifically, it's a story possibly of how big human, even if they're half gods, how big humans can get. Many of these versions emphasize the actual size of these children. It was in the Odyssey quote, but a description of their size also appears in Pseudo-Apollodorus, the translation of which is easier to understand. He says, quote, when they were nine years old and measured 18 feet across by 54 feet tall. Whew. At this size and age, he says, is when they decided to fight the gods. And well, now we know how well that went for them. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. Thank you, as always, for listening. This was a super fun episode. Characters I've known of for ages and ages, but have never actually gotten to do on the podcast. Honestly, that's pretty rare at this point, so it's an added thrill. Plus, just seriously nice to have some straightforward, if brief, and fragmentary mythology to work from. What a concept. I'm not reading, like, eight different academic sources, each breaking down bits and pieces from ancient fragments without actually telling me what the fucking fragments say, let alone the debate amongst academics about what is and was not Orphic and why, and I'm over it. And I'm sure I'll cover it again in the future, specifically if I get a guest to come on. But today is not that day. Goodbye, Orpheus. Stay in the underworld where you belong. I say all that as if I didn't uh, read to you a big handful of fragmentary sources at the end of this episode just to explain the odd but cool nature of this story. But it's so different reading sources that I understand versus sources on the Orphics. (sighs) Man. Anyway, rambling next week, Ares. I'm going to tell you all I can about the god of war and whatever he did get up to. Though he managed to stay under the Olympian radar in most instances. Such is life when you're a god of war, right? Still, that's for next week. This week, we have just the added silliness of the god of bloodshed and violence getting trapped in a jar. Because this is still Greek mythology, after all, and it is always sillier than we think it's going to be. And on that note, here is a five-star review I got from one of you amazing listeners. As always, these mean the whole world to me, and every time I get the email with the new reviews, my day gets a little better. This one is from Yace in the States, and is titled Amazing! Honestly, I'm having so much fun learning about Greek mythology, and she makes it funnier. I'm so grateful this podcast is here. Fun fact, this is my current hyperfixation, so yeah. The way she reads, tells the myths, little comments here and there are what makes this podcast amazing. Also, I just recently found it, but I love it already. Thank you. I love you. (laughs) Let's Talk About Myths, Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Thank you all. You're the best. I am Liv, and I love this shit. (laughs)